Biz News Power Hour. That's our cue to let you know that it's the 13th of October edition of the Biz News Power Hour and that for the next hour we have got, well, plenty of power coming through to you in this program tonight. Uh, we'll be kicking off as per usual with a market report and thereafter our colleagues at the Financial Times in London, our partners over there, will be telling us about a warning from the International Monetary Fund on inflation and Christmas starting early or at least the retailers are forcing it through in the United States. Then we have an interview uh, with the new chief commercial officer of South African Airways. His name is Simon Newton-Smith. He's a airline executive veteran who did work for South African Airways for four years a couple of decades ago, loves the idea of the challenge, joined the airline while it was still in business, business rescue and is now directing it uh, in a very different way to the way that the airline was run in the past. It sounds very much like a business nowadays, but you make up your own mind. Uh, it certainly filled me with great confidence that taxpayers won't have to be kicking into SAA ever again. Uh, we'll hear then from the mayor-in-waiting of Cape Town, the DA's candidate uh, for the November 1 election, uh, Jordan Hill-Lewis, on his plans and the practical application of getting Cape Town away from load shedding, i.e. no more load shedding in future for the Cape. Well, I guess that that's going to be a magnet for a business from all over the country. We'll hear from Jordan on that subject later. And then the last of our interviews tonight is with Magnus Haystack, the founder and the chief investment strategist of Brenthurst Wealth. And Magnus has got a bee in his bonnet, rightly so, about his clients who are retiring with nothing near the amount of or the size of nest egg that was anticipated. Reason, something called Regulation 28, which the South African retirement industry is not addressing. It forces us as South Africans to put 70% of our retirement funds into South African assets. In other words, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and bonds here. And those assets have massively underperformed the rest of the world in the last 10 years. In fact, they haven't even beaten inflation. So that's the problem that we are dealing with as far as retirement funding is concerned. All of that coming up for you in the next 60 minutes. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Let's find out from my colleague Nadia Swart how the news headlines or what the news headlines are today, Nadia. DNG Energy, a losing bidder for state contracts to supply emergency power in South Africa, made fresh corruption allegations against the winning bidder, car powership and a government official. In an October 12th supplementary affidavit to court papers, the first of which were filed in April, SA-based DNG alleged that businessmen who are now partnering Turkey's car powership approached the firm's CEO seeking a bribe. In exchange, they would ensure that DNG won a contract. Aldwith Mbalati, the CEO of DNG, said in the papers, adding that he spurned their offer. Power, Power Group SA Limited, Car Powership's local partners, and Car Powership denied the allegations. South Africa's ongoing steelworker strike is likely to lead to job cuts, further hammering an industry that's been in decline for several years, according to the country's main employer body. The week-long walkout by as many as 300,000 members and allies of NUMSA has affected five provinces and disrupted supply chains to major firms, including carmaker BMW. The Labour Group is weighing a response to a renewed pay offer, spokeswoman Shubi Mahola said on Tuesday. The strike threatens to derail the potential recovery of South Africa's economy from the coronavirus pandemic. And South Africa's beleaguered tourism sector is preparing for an influx of British visitors ahead of the busy summer season. This comes amid the United Kingdom's decision to ease travel restrictions between the two countries. The UK has traditionally been SA's largest source market for tourists. More than 430,000 UK tourists visited South Africa in 2019, representing almost 30% of all European arrivals. 
It's estimated that UK tourists pump up to 790 million rand into the economy every month during the busy season. But the global COVID-19 pandemic, associated lockdowns and travel bans, in this instance, the UK's traffic light system, grounded international tourism to a halt. Well, thanks, Nadja. And uh, interesting to see that Aldworth Mbalati, who has featured on our program before, certainly he did at the time that all of the uh, allegations came out about this car power ship deal, driven, uh, he claims, uh, by family members of Gwede Mantash, the Minister of Mining and Energy. Mantash has been coming under pressure from many, many quarters. And uh, as you'll hear in our interview a little later, from uh, Jordan Hill-Lewis. He reckons he's the worst cabinet minister and uh, he's the one who needs to be taken out. Well, maybe Aldworth Mbalati will be the one who achieves that, although I'm not so sure, given the history that Wedi Mantash has with the president, Cyril Ramaphosa. Of course, they're both uh, stalwarts from the National Union of Mine Workers. Well, on to the markets today. Uh, Again, as we saw yesterday, not a whole lot of movement. The resources were a little bit softer. They were about 1% lower, but the industrials were up about half a percent and the all share index as a consequence actually flat one quarter, one fifth of 1% uh, easier today. The rand a little bit stronger. We're at 1486 against the US dollar, 2025 against the pound and 1718 against the Euro. That's 17 rands and 18 cents to buy one euro. Uh, the gold price is $25 an ounce stronger today at $1,783. Uh, that translates into a 300 rand improvement in the Kruger Rand price, in the Rand price of gold, in other words, which is now at 26 and a half thousand rands. Uh, Brent crude is off a little. It was at $85 earlier in the week. It's now at 83 And uh, the platinum price is up just like gold by about $20 to $1,027. In New York, their markets have opened relatively steady, slightly, slightly down, about half a percent down uh, across the board on the main industrial shares, although the NASDAQ is a little bit in the positive. As per the individual shares, there was a big move today for Ascenders Health after a cautionary announcement, that share price was up by 17%. But no other real uh, news or, or share price moving news, perhaps with the exception of Caxton, uh, which came out with its results for the year to end June, and the share price there was up by 1.5%. So slightly slight improvement there, but nothing to write home about. As far as the major moves on the market are concerned, once again, a good day for Italtile, which got up to 16 rand a share, up by 6%. And the motor group, Motus, uh, the old imperial motor uh, operations, that was up by 4%. Industrial company ACI was 3% higher, and uh, there was an improvement by Massmart of about 2.5%. On the way down, Mediclinic, MTN, BHP, Exaro, Anglo-American were all softer, uh, losing around about 2% on the day. Uh, the biggest traded share uh, in top volume was First Rand, which lost just over a Rand a share to 60 Rand and 50 cents. If you want to go on to Biz News Radio and listen to Koki Koiman's view and assessment of the top six, you heard that on the Power Hour last night. But just as a reminder, uh, he felt that First Rand was a great opportunity for the long term, but maybe it's not one that is offering the best value right now. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, October 13th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The IMF issued a stern warning about inflation, and the fund's top boss gets to keep her job after weeks in hot water. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Holiday shopping is already underway. We are in the holiday season. I've not heard a lot of Mariah Carey in the wild yet, but I'm pretty confident that the Christmas songs are soon going to be upon us. The FT's Andrew Edgecliff Johnson tells me why retailers are stocking up and selling holiday goods earlier than ever before. Then we'll go to the high plains of Colorado to find out about a new clean energy project involving solar and steel. I'm Lauren Fedor, in for Mark Filipino. 
International Monetary Fund warned yesterday that the global economy is entering a phase of inflationary risk. It called on central banks to be, quote, very, very vigilant and take early action to tighten monetary policy if price pressures prove persistent. Here's the FT's Colby Smith. This call from the IMF is certainly not new, but I think the urgency with which they are talking about inflation risks perhaps has increased to a certain extent. We're going to get more data on the U.S. front um, with the latest uh, consumer price index out. And what we've seen in the U.S. in particular, which is one of those places where the IMF has warned the upside risk to inflation is quite significant. And what we've seen there is a bit of a moderation in the month to month gains. But on an annual basis, consumer price growth that we've seen is still elevated at a 13 year high or around that level. So what we're seeing is clearly more persistent inflation than I think anyone imagined. There's a lot of things that are, are keeping people very vigilant to this idea that inflation could be higher than, than anyone anticipated. Colby's also been covering the big drama at the IMF over whether managing director Kristalina Georgieva should keep her job. She's been accused of manipulating data to favor China while she was at the World Bank. As Colby reported, the IMF's board decided to let her stay despite deep divisions. It's quite clear that they came to this conclusion based on the evidence that they currently have at the moment. The board made clear on Monday that the investigation um, that the World Bank had begun was still ongoing. So while this issue is resolved for the time being, I think a lot of people are looking at some of those statements and, and wondering what else maybe these investigations will produce and what it will eventually mean for Georgieva's future at the fund. That's our U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith. This week, a clean energy project is being launched in the high plains of Colorado. It's a massive solar energy array that will power a nearby steel mill in the town of Pueblo. This array is sprawls across the scrubland in the high plains desert. That's the FT's Derek Brower. He went to Pueblo to find out more about the project, which is backed by an interesting array of companies. It's been done by BP, which is an oil supermajor that's trying to redefine itself as an energy company. And it's being fed, uh, the electricity that is, it's being fed to a steel mill. Steel is one of the hardest uh, segments of the global economy to decarbonize. And the company buying the electricity, a Russian mining conglomerate, says that it's going to create the cleanest steel in the world because it's using solar uh, electricity to fire its electric arc furnace. Now, this isn't the kind of steel mill that uses um, iron ore to make steel. This is a recycling facility, uh, which is actually the way most of the steel in the U.S. is made. So it can actually claim to be pretty green. Derek, can you tell us a little bit more about Pueblo? What does it mean for the city to have this project? I drove down from Denver a couple of days ago and sat down with the mayor of Pueblo and the developers of this solar array south of the town. And I wanted to get a sense of why it was important to Pueblo. And they talk about rejuvenating, the mayor and others, they talk about rejuvenating a community that has struggled for a long time with gang violence, with high poverty rates, with soaring electricity prices pollution and, and so on. And they see clean energy suddenly as an opportunity to revive the city's fortunes. And this solar array isn't the only clean energy facility there. There's a wind tower manufacturer, uh, used to be owned by Vestas, now owned by CS Wind, a South Korean company just south of town near the solar array I was visiting. There's a bunch of other solar facilities. And further out, there's wind capacity across Colorado as well. So there's lots happening in this tiny town. And it's a real fascinating story about the energy transition in America. Is there a longer term ambition to replicate this elsewhere? What this project shows is that communities that used to rely on fossil fuels for their electricity can probably now, in the right parts of the world, sunny parts of the world, like southern Colorado, windy parts like Colorado, they can rely on solar and wind to supply the electricity. And so you can expect to see more of these deals happen in those kinds of sunny, windy parts of the world. What's really interesting is that this kind of agreement and project is coming online just as other parts of the world will go through this energy crunch. 
that is leading some politicians to wonder if the transition to cleaner energy is happening too fast and that it's leaving consumers exposed to price spikes when the wind stops or the sun stops shining. In Colorado, they're saying, no way, this is the most reliable long-term supply of electricity we've got, and it's the cheapest, so let's bring it online and, and get moving with it. Derek Brower is the FT's U.S. Energy Editor. In the U.S., the holiday shopping season has already begun. Our U.S. business editor, Andrew Edgecliff Johnson, says retailers have thrown out the old calendar. If there's one thing any of us understood about the holidays in America, it was that they started with a bang on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, where everybody crushed into Walmart and Best Buy and fought over the hottest new toy or the biggest new flat screen TV. And it was all chaos. In fact, what we're seeing now is retailers starting to offer their Black Friday style discounts up to six weeks earlier. So we've now got big companies like Amazon, Target and others trying to incentivize consumers to get to the shops in early October. So it's completely scrambling our understanding of what the holiday season is. Are we in the holiday shopping season now or does the season just not exist anymore? We are in the holiday season. I've not heard a lot of Mariah Carey in the wild yet, but I'm pretty confident that the uh, the Christmas songs are soon going to be upon us. But essentially, what these retailers are trying to do is stretch the season out because they are very, very worried about supply chain challenges, leaving them with empty shelves. And at the same time, they have a crush of goods which they brought in early, which they can't really find the warehouse space for. And they've paid for up front. And so they need consumers to buy that stuff from them to top up their cash balances again. Is there any indication that consumers are doing that? Are they out shopping now? Yeah, the survey data suggests that about a third of Americans are genuinely concerned that they're not going to get the goods they want and that they are going to start their holiday shopping early as a result. And that, if you think about it, is quite logical because so many people experienced delays to delivery services and things last holiday to the extent that they actually got their presents too late to be put under the tree for Christmas morning. Andrew Edgecliff Johnson is the FT's U.S. business editor. And before we go, a word of warning for cycling enthusiasts. Global supply chain troubles have also hit bike makers. The head of the British foldable bicycle maker, Brompton, says the industry will need 18 more months to recover. He said the problem has shifted from parts shortages to difficulties securing raw materials, such as aluminum and steel. Demand for bicycles soared during the pandemic and companies raised prices. But Brompton says despite that, Supply chain troubles are now squeezing their margins. You can read more on all these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, it's a warm welcome to Simon Newton-Smith. Very good to be talking with you, Simon, Chief Commercial Officer at South African Airways. Just by way of background, how long have you been with the airline? Um, so I rejoined the airline in August of this year, so a grand total of uh, eight weeks. But I'm a, I'm a, bit, of a, I'm a bit of a rebound. Um, I, I was with the company for four years back in 2000 to 2004. So it's uh, a very different airline, but very nice to be back. Coming back in August, while the uh, troubles were going on at South African Airways, must have taken, uh, well, some some very good reason. What was it that brought you back? You know what? It, it's, it goes back a little bit to, to what I was just saying. I worked for the airline 20 years ago. And um, for a whole bunch of reasons, I've had a, a passion for South Africa and South African Airways. I'm married to a South African uh, we have a home here. My children are South African. I just uh, I love the country. I love the place. And having worked for the airline for four years, it's been it's been quite sad to see what's happened over the last twenty years. And you know, um, for my sins, I'm an airline guy through and through. Um, you know, there is a path for South African Airways moving forward. And you know, I've spoken to a lot of people that can criticise from the sidelines. I wanted to be part of the solution and. Uh, um, I was delighted when conversation started and, 
you know, the uh, the environment felt right to, to come in, play a role, and just help this airline back on its feet. When you say an airline guy, tell us a little about your background. Oh, gosh, it's very boring, really, but it's um, I started uh, – my first airline job was on the checking desk for an airline called uh, British Midland in the UK and uh, loved customer service. Uh, and then just with British Midland moved into sales and then I moved on to Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Atlantic was really the base of my career. 20 years in two 10-year stints working all over the world, UK, um, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, the US. Um, in various roles. And, you know, after a stint with South African Airways, I was back at Virgin and then Qatar Airways, based in the Middle East and the UK. So, you know, again, there's no getting away from it, whether I uh, like it or not, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an airline guy for the rest of my career, I think. Quite a lot's happened at South African Airways since the 23rd of September, when you went back into the skies. There's an article today on my broadband, which says that Certain of the flights have been cancelled already. You're having to deal with labour issues and so on. Maybe we can just unpack them one by one. Uh, on the 23rd of September, uh, our good friend here at Biz News, Paul O'Sullivan, got on a flight. He said it was fantastic. Uh, there was spontaneous cheering from the customers, all looking exciting. But I suppose that was day one. What's happened since day one? Uh, I was on actually on the same flight as uh, Paul and uh that's how he and I met uh, a couple of weeks ago. But a uh, great, great chap, huge supporter for South Africa and South African Airways. But actually, we've been building on that um, very first day. So we started our first week of operations uh, just around the holidays, flying three flights a day to uh, Cape Town. Our originally intended start date for all services was the uh, 27th of September, uh, sort of like National uh, Tourism Day. Uh, but anyway, the following week began service to Harare, uh, to Accra, to Kinshasa, to Lusaka. And the intention originally stated was to begin service to Maputo. Uh, but we since made the decision to delay the start of Maputo until December. So, you know, going back to the first point, and, you know, it's a shame that some things get reported the way that they do. Because we've, you know, we've made a commitment that, you know what, restarting an airline is tough. Uh, doing it in the middle of COVID, where your markets are generally down anywhere between 50 and 70 percent, adds a, an extra layer of complexity, you know, into the mix. The times are not usual, you know, so we have to be data led in terms of how we make our flying decisions. So when we announced our flying program on the 26th of August, I mean, literally, that was less than a month before we, you know, we were to start flying. That's a tight window at the best of times. Um, but, you know, we made a, a company-wide decision and a commitment to our trade partners that we would use data to inform our schedules and we would use data if we had to change our schedules. But the one thing that we would do is we would make those changes in advance of people going to the airport. Now, I've heard so many horror stories of people arriving at the airport only to find out, you know, flying on another airline that their flight is cancelled on the day and some airlines adopt a strategy of publish flights let's get the demand and then we'll just consolidate flights during the day and we'll move people around we've made the decision not to do that but you know we uh, we originally published for example with Lusaka we originally published now ambition is to get to daily flights and then back up to daily, uh, double daily flights we originally published a, a daily schedule for Lusaka but as we could see, when the numbers were building, there were some flights performing well, and then there were some obvious days that were performing not so well. So we made a proactive decision to say, you know what, it doesn't make sense. We've got a dual responsibility to maintain a schedule, you know, so our customers are confident. But equally, we've got a responsibility not to be flying around aeroplanes with very few people. You know, when you're starting a service, it takes time to build the loads up. We've just been striking a balance, but we've done that in advance. We haven't, to my knowledge, cancelled a single flight that we haven't done so in advance as part of a planned schedule change. So point number one, you know, is yes, there have been changes to the schedule, but cancellations is not what we've done. We've proactively changed the flying programme to uh, fit capacity with demand. 
Can I understand that, but how long in advance have your announcements been made of these cancellations? So when we when we did the first batch, and you know, we've literally done one round of changes, and we did that the week prior to launching the service, services into the regions. So we could see, and in fact, it was the same, uh, it was either on the 23rd or the 24th, the week prior to flying the regional flights from the 27th, there had been no changes to the Cape Town schedule. You know, so there were changes to Lusaka and then a proactive decision to delay the start of Maputo, which again, is just a sensible airline decision. We contacted every customer directly that was impacted, gave them the opportunity to move on to partner airlines, change their dates, get a refund. So uh, this, this impacted very few people. But again, proactive airline decision, but, uh, you know, just given the circumstances. And the decisions to, to fly to Accra, Harare, Kinshasa, Lusaka, and soon uh, to Maputo, why those destinations? Why not the big ones, uh, New York and London? Yes. Well, a couple of reasons. I, the, the COVID playbook, if you like, for airlines around the world is actually focused on those airlines that have got big domestic markets that's where you play. You know, it's easy to travel. You know what you're dealing with. But as you well know, South Africa is well trafficked. There are a lot of very good airlines plowing the same routes. Frankly, the quickest way back to business rescue for South African Airways would have been purely flying Cape Town, purely flying Durban, purely flying Cape Town to Durban, the Golden Triangle. So, so the, the, the rationale was about spreading the, um, if you like, the network. One, to capitalize on some of the, you know, Cape Town is by far and away the largest market in Africa. So, you know, we've tapped in with the small footprints of the Cape Town market. But then, you know, there's a multitude of places that you can fly across the region. Historically, regional flying has been the bread and butter, if you like, of South African Airways. Um, so we were looking for markets, one, that were relatively open. You know, clearly, you know, Nigeria right now, it's not an easy place to get in, in or out of. So which markets are open? Which markets can we see that there's been some demand during COVID? Uh, which markets are showing some increase in demand looking forward? We've got data that helps point us in the right direction. And frankly, where, where are the fares in the market that will allow us to add our seats? You know, when you add capacity to a market, the pricing comes down a bit. But even with that, could we offer the value for money in the market and still make a profit. So essentially, those were the five or six factors that determined that initial selection. And where the data was originally, you know, pointing in the direction for Maputo, you know, we had to act on the sort of like the latest data to, to, to make a change there. But broadly, those were the decisions that underpinned the initial network. We hear from Virgin Atlantic, one of your, uh, as you said, one of the companies you worked at previously for a long time, that their bookings have doubled to South Africa post the removal from the red list. Is this edging you back towards a London flight or uh, maybe just explain that to us? I, I presume it's not as easy as just switching on a tap. Uh, you need to get landing rights, etc. Yes. Well, we've still, and, and, and thank you, because you did ask that question before and I didn't answer it directly. Um, listen, in the short term, you know, what we, what we do know is that domestic market will return first. The regional market will return second. It will be the long haul, which will take longer to return. So all of the predictions, you know, what has happened in the UK with the removal from the red list in, in the last week, that is undoubtedly going to create a surge in, in short term demand. But the, we, we shouldn't confuse the short-term surge with the underlying trends. And all of the indicators are that it's going to be well into 2022, if not 2023, before you see any global normalising of leisure, long-haul travel demand. So we've got to be really careful. We could jump on that bandwagon. And, you know, we've got aircraft that can fly to London. We still have the slots. Um, so we still have the licences. We could do it, but it would not be the most prudent thing to do for the longer term. So part of our strategy will be working with partners to help folks from the UK obviously get into South Africa and then connect onto the South African Airways network as well as the network of the other airlines. So we can still benefit from the changes, but we won't be rushing necessarily to put aircraft 
right back into the UK, into the US and the long-term routes. The, the underlying economics have got to be stable for, for longer than a, a short-term uh, spike, if that makes sense. It does. You made mention of the Golden Triangle. Are, you, uh, are there plans advanced in flying to Durban, given that uh, you back Cape Town, Joburg? Yeah, the, 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 the numbers don't make sense right now. And as much as we want to be back in Durban, I, you know, right now, and I'll, this is being transparent, if you were to operate Cape Town by itself, it would be loss-making. As part of the small network that we're operating, it makes sense because it, it delivers passengers to all of the routes. Those economics aren't there yet for Durban. So we want to be back in Durban. Our customers want us back in Durban. Our partners want us back in Durban. But right now, if we were to add Durban to the, to the relatively small network that we have, it would probably make the whole small network unprofitable. So we've got to wait for the network to get a bit bigger. You know, the, the economics of Durban are the economics of Durban. So we'll wait for the market to get a bit bigger before we can comfortably add Durban back in. Part of what we're doing is we're working with the opportunities. Today we've announced uh, that we'll, we'll be resuming uh, service to Mauritius. You know, again, I think before the big news of London reopening, the big news was that uh, Mauritius was reopening. So all of the numbers suggest that that is the right thing to do. So we'll start cautiously. Um, so at the end of November, we'll start with uh, uh, two services per week on peak days. And depending on the demand, we'll, we'll go bigger from there. But again, to do the right thing for the airline, to do the right thing, Frankly, for the taxpayer, we've got to build back better, but we've got to build back cautiously. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Jordan Hill-Lewis joins us to pick up on something which could become a magnet for companies in South Africa. Load shedding has been with us in this country for sure, nearly 15 years now. And from everything we hear from Eskom, it's not going to end anytime soon. But you, as the mayoral candidate for Cape Town, are running on the platform of no more load shedding. You'll be completely uh, invulnerable to whatever Eskom decides. Jordan, that's quite a big statement, given that every municipality in the country would love to do it, much less a, a huge metro like Cape Town. And I asked you if you could just tell me practically how are you going to achieve that? If we just start from where will you get the electricity from if you can't get it from Eskom? Thank you, Alec. It's really nice to be with you and thanks for the invitation. I'm really glad that you asked me to talk about load shedding because this is one of the things that I'm most excited about this in this election and, and for Cape Town's future. You're absolutely right. My very first campaign that I fought in uh, as a a staff member back then was on Helen's campaign when she was running for mayor of Cape Town in November 2005. We had our very first load shedding, although the term wasn't introduced then. You'll remember, infamously, Alec Irwin described it as a bolt in the generator in, in Kuburg. But that was really the first rolling blackout that South Africa experienced, and that was November 2005. So, so you know, as you said, uh, 15, more than 15 years ago yeah. or more, more than 15 years ago. So there's a whole generation of kids who have grown up without knowing that we once didn't have load shedding. Uh, I find it outrageous. I really do. I think that South Africa has lowered our standards where most people actually find this acceptable. That uh, Not so much acceptable, but just a kind of ordinary part of our lives that, that we, we have to put up with load shedding. Even though it is technologically so possible that it's actually, I don't think it's an exaggeration to describe it as easy. It's easy to defeat load shedding because all of the technology is already there. In fact, it was there 15 years ago. Uh, we are way behind the rest of the world on, on renewable energy. Cape Town is one of the sunniest places and one of the windiest places. And yet here we sit 15 years later and hundreds of billions of rands in, in expenditure and bailouts later still with load shedding. So 
So I'm absolutely committed to this, and I believe that technologically it's actually uh, imminently doable using renewable power and uh, battery and pump storage. And the key thing is actually, uh, firstly, the political will to take on national government to do it, but also the changing regulatory environment. So we have had the, the regulatory changes that allow for 100 uh, megawatts in self-generation without a license. We've also got this kind of smallest opening in the door for, uh, for municipalities to start buying their power independently. And I think that what Cape Town's got to do is move very quickly now and very aggressively to kick open that door and start buying uh, power independently from ESCOM. And crucially, uh, buying power on its own doesn't stop load shedding, but start buying storage capacity from, uh, from independent providers so that when you do have load shedding, you have the storage capacity to be able to offset that load shedding. And that's what Cape Town already does using the Steenbrus Dam pump storage system. We already have essentially what is the biggest battery in, in the country. And that helps us to offset stage one load shedding so that there is no load shedding in Cape Town when the rest of the country is on stage one. But, uh, but what we really want to do is expand our storage capacity, both in-house by, by continuing to invest in, in Steenbrus, but also from independent providers, uh, expand our storage and, and power capacity to, to make ourselves my ambition, and I know that it is ambitious, but I'm absolutely committed to this, to make ourselves free from load shedding. Now, uh, you know, that's going to take some, some very focused work uh, over the next few years, but if we do, as you said at the beginning, what a boon that would be for Cape Town's economy as the well, only place in the country with, yeah. with reliable electricity. I remember talking with your executive deputy mayor who was he took us through the rates and taxes in Cape Town. More efficient governance has actually meant that your rates are now lower uh, than anywhere else in the of the other metropoles. And I guess that's going to accelerate if you have more efficient governance. But just to unpack it from the beginning, how much power does Cape Town need? And is it feasible in that context? that there are enough independent power producers that you could buy from instead of getting it from ESCOM? Oh, sure. But look, I'm not talking about cutting, switching off ESCOM entirely in Cape Town. Cape Town uses about 2,000 megawatts uh, at, at peak times. So it's a huge, it's a huge uh, amount of power. We don't have to replace that in full. Remember, for every stage of load shedding, you've got to switch off 100 megawatts per stage uh, in Cape Town. So for stage one, 100 megawatts, stage two, 200 megawatts, and so on. Uh, so what we need to do is to be able to replace that load shed portion, reduce our reliance on ESCOM by that load shed portion so that we can uh, protect consumers and, and residents from, from load shedding. And then over time, of course, you're right, over time, but that's a, that's a longer-term vision, reduce reliance on ESCOM even beyond that so that we can bring prices down because ESCOM is now one of the most expensive providers of electricity when, when renewable energy is coming in at a fraction of the cost. So what's your short-term ambition? Presumably, if Eskom went to load-shedding level 5, you'd need 500 megawatts. We, we already have 100 megawatts from, uh, from Steenbrus. And I would, you know, the, the, most, the most serious load-shedding that we've had in the last year, I think, has been level 4. So if we can get up to 300 or even uh, close to 400 megawatts of additional capacity, then I think we can pretty much uh, effectively say that, uh, that Cape Town is free from uh, all of the ordinary, so-called ordinary, it's never ordinary, but, but what we now consider ordinary load shedding in, in South Africa. Um, and if it gets worse than that, if it gets up to five, stage five or six or seven, uh, as we've had once before uh, a couple of years ago, then, you know, then that's going to take longer to, to get there. It's definitely going to take longer to get there. But if we can say to South Africans that when the rest of the country is on stage three or four, you will have nothing, then I think that would just be uh, an amazing thing. And there are enough independent power producers in the province that you can tap into? Alec, let me tell you, I've sometimes I, I in fact, I know that after this interview, it's going to happen again. I am, I have a deluge of foreign investors, foreign governments, local investors contacting me every time I do an interview about this saying, we are ready and waiting. We just need the regulatory approvals to get this done. All the technology is there. It is much cheaper than ESCOM can ever provide. It's much cheaper than the city is currently paying. 
In fact, there's, there's even concessional finance available. There's, there, there are sloshes of money around the world available for, uh, for renewable energy at very concessional rates. So, so raising the money is not a problem. Uh, the technology is not a problem. It is all politics in South Africa. And this is what I find so outrageous, that, we, that you and I and millions of other South Africans sit in darkness every evening because Minister Gwede Mantashe refuses to uh, speed this reform process along and uh, you know, introduce a truly competitive and open energy market and allow cities to buy from the, the lowest cost producer. And I just think that it's time enough for us to say uh, we actually are not going to accept this outrage of load shedding when, when all of the answers are so easy just because of a you know kind of fossil fuel uh, obsessed national minister is refuses to to usher in a, a competitive energy market we'll we'll move ahead and, and and push that door open ourselves but what does the law say are you allowed to do that to push in fact you said kick the door open earlier yes well so so the, the law the door is uh, is slightly ajar in that we are, you know, we're allowed to now have 100 megawatt uh, self-generation. And the law now says clearly that you, you're allowed to resell excess uh, supply to third-party consumers. Uh, so, so I think that the only plausible interpretation of that is that uh, municipalities are included in uh, so-called resellers that we can buy from third parties and sell to other consumers, to other third parties. And, and so that's, you know, that is the future energy model for, for governments is to run the network grid. The, the, uh, it's essentially a wheeling business. So we can slowly but surely get out of the business of simply buying es, uh, expensive uh, energy from ESCOM and, and selling that expensive energy to consumers with a little bit of a markup to run our own grids. That business model is rapidly dying. Because uh, every major consumer who can afford to is, is checking out of that system. They, 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 you know, they're investing in their own self-generation. So we better move to the new model uh, quickly. Otherwise, it actually poses an existential threat to local government finance across the, across the country. I'm just thinking about this on those 100 megawatt abilities to put a plant up. What would be stopping you from, from actually going into that model uh, very quickly of having five or six of these providers? Look, I, uh, to my, my interpretation is that nothing is stopping us and that we should do so as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, but as I said, the, remember, it's not just about generating new power. Because if you, have, if you have, let's say, 100 megawatts of new power, that is removed from the national grid, but that doesn't stop load shedding. You've got to have a way of storing that power for when load shedding occurs. So the, the, the procurement of storage capacity is actually just as important as the procurement of independent power, which is why I heard in your introduction you were talking about uh, the, the mayor of Johannesburg talking about, is it, is it Kelvin? Kelvin Power Kelvin Station? Power Station, yes. Uh, yes. So what I did not understand about the mayor's statement, I read it very carefully, and I'm not sure that the mayor properly understands the, the technicalities here, or if he does, maybe he just didn't say that. Uh, is that it's not good enough to simply buy 100 megawatts of power from Kelvin Power Station. That is not going to protect residents in Joburg from load shedding. You've got to have a way to store it. Uh, and that is really the key technological unlock that we've got to achieve uh, to, to, to stop load shedding. But to answer your question, I don't think that there's any impediment. I don't think that there's any legal impediment. We've got to move quickly. I have no doubt that the National Minister uh, Mantashe, who is now, I strongly believe, the biggest handbrake on the South African economy is Minister Gwede Mantashe. He should be removed from office as soon as possible uh, to get a, a forward-thinking, uh, future-focused uh, minister, growth-oriented minister there. Uh, I think he will try to put more stumbling blocks in our way. Uh, and, and he's not going to be happy about it, but we've got to push that advantage. And as I said, yeah, that door's open, now we've got to kick it open. If the ANC were to pass more legislation, in other words, reverse its view on the 100 megawatt, would you then go to the Constitutional Court? Are you that determined to kick open this door that's ajar? In other words, whatever's thrown at you? 
uh, you prepared to I'm take it on? I'm absolutely determined on this. As I said to you, I regard this as it's not just an inconvenience for South Africans to have to cook dinner in the dark. It is a massive, massive, uh, uh, you know, ball and chain on our national economy. It's holding us down. It's a, a huge deterrent to investor sentiment. Imagine trying to run a manufacturing business in this country where you've got municipal outages because of low, bad maintenance of, of municipal, municipal infrastructure. Then you've got two hours or four hours of ESCOM outages. No wonder we are seeing such horrific declines in manufacturing employment in South Africa. It's impossible to run any kind of manufacturing business under these conditions, never mind all the other businesses. So this, I, I really, South Africans need to get more angry about, about load shedding. It is not normal. It is not acceptable particularly when all of the technological solutions are so easily there. This is a political and regulatory reason. That's the reason we have load shedding, and I find that totally unacceptable. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to stop pushing this, and even, even if it means we do have to take them on. Magnus Haystack, it's really good to be talking with you on a sad week. Uh, the passing of Alan Greenblow on Monday really affected uh, many people in the financial services sector. I know that you and Alan knew each other pretty well and you almost peas from the same part in that you worked towards putting forward the case for independent analysis of retirement funds, which isn't really that well uh, articulated in South Africa. Yes, I mean, I must say I was shocked when I saw that Alan was one of the best financial journalists of this generation. I mean, starting in the late 70s, Financial Mail, then Finance Week, uh, and even Business Day. He was a superb writer, superb human being. We interacted quite often still until recently, just quite short, short exchanges of information on retirement funds. And he was a superb guy. And I just got so sad when I, when I saw the news. And I must thank you for writing a superb piece about Alan because you, you worked with him and worked under him and, and you were one of his better. Uh, products that you that he produced over the years, but the way the way he could write on financial journalism, I mean, most people can just just uh, hope that they can write as eloquently uh, as 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 Alan did write on financial matters. And for the last sixteen years of his life, in, indeed, right up until last week, he was completely committed to today's trustee, which is an unusual publication, one that was waving the banner uh, for education of retirement fund trustees. Uh, maybe, Magnus, you can under, unpack that for us. Why is it such an important role uh, that, or why is it so important that retirement fund trustees are well-educated in uh, the field, in the job that they are doing? Yes, it's a pity that, that you know, today's trustee was not more widely read because the general public didn't get to see it. It was mainly the, the group of trustees who operated in the retirement planning space. And you have in the, in the, in the, the structure of South African retirement funds, most uh, company funds will put two trustees on the board and then you have the two professional people. And it was especially those so-called two independent trustees who sat on these thousands of, of retirement funds who had to put a, make an input and make uh, decisions on, on, on very important matters where to invest this money on behalf of their members. And and very, very often, it was my experience as well, being a trustee of the old August Pension Fund, I mean, the level of knowledge was was, was astonishing. It was very low. It was non-existent. They were sitting there. Uh, people were representing perhaps people working on the factory floor, and he was made a trustee. And here he was having to make decisions of, which concerned billions and billions of rands of funds that were invested. And that, of course, created all kinds of opportunities for this, uh, this independence to be undermined. And, 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 and very, many, many funny things happened in pension funds. So what he was trying to do is said, this was not a very good situation to be where the professionals would come in, bamboozle these poor uh, independent trustees. They make decisions and they don't know what the heck they voted for. So he played a very important role unfortunately, behind the scenes, trying to improve the outcome for many, many thousands, if not millions of people in South Africa. So one can only pay tribute to what Alan was doing 
for the last 15 years. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. I spent some time last week going through uh, the website of one of our largest financial insurance companies, and I looked at their REC28 funds, and they've got a myriad of them, hundreds of them, different names, but they're all the same. And they are REC28 funds, which means they pension uh, in line with the pension funds. And I battled to find um, any of the particular funds that has beaten the inflation rate over one, three, five, and even up to eight years. And that's excluding the those friction costs. So this is a very large. They, the, the numbers are there, but people are not talking about it. I mean, I noticed in the last week a couple of reports. Uh, 10X came out with their retirement survey, and there was a Sunlam Benchmark survey, and Alexander Forbes came out with their survey. But was, what was lacking, all of those reports made no reference to the bad returns of pension funds over the last eight years. Not a single one referred to the investment returns. They said, yes, people are not saving enough. People are cashing out their pension funds. People are doing this. People are doing that. I'm saying, yes, that's true up to a point. But in the last eight years, in a very soon 10 years, the retirement funds in, in terms of the Rec28 regime has failed most savers in South Africa Please publish the numbers and let's discuss it. Not a word about the returns. And that is a major concern to me. Why would they not expose those returns? Well, it reflects very badly on themselves and on Reg 28. You must understand Reg 28 was changed exactly 10 years ago and we have the current formula. And I think it was a major mistake. The timing was wrong. Up to then, Alec, in most RA funds and provident funds and preservation funds, you could have chosen your own risk profile, which included going 100% offshore or 50% or 17 That was taken away 10 years ago. Now everybody has to drive the same car, same color. As long as it's black, you can have any car that you like. The result is that the last 10 years, because of the strict regulation of the offshore component in particular, it started with 20% offshore, went up to 30. It has not been enough. Our stock market has not produced enough growth to, for the retirement. And I actually compared this with, I just took a random, a couple of uh, pension funds in the United States where you have freedom to choose. And there's countries like Austria, Sweden, uh, Finland, Norway, where you have 100% freedom to choose what you like, what you want to put in your pension fund. That is your call. Well, they've made inflation plus 10, plus 12, plus 15%. South Africa, zero, and in some cases, minus the inflation rate. So it's, it's, it's a problem that is being ignored from the, from the financial services uh, industry, in my, in my view, fairly deliberately. And, and the media is missing this because they don't talk enough about this. But the numbers are horrendous, Alec. Um, when I talk to people and I say, let's have a look at your pension funds, RAs, the returns have been have been have been horribly poor, but it makes sense. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you if you look at South Africa's economic performance in the last ten years, we have been growing at less than the growth in the population. The economy has been really poorly managed, and as a consequence of that, you have to expect that on average, the local based companies are not going to perform terribly well. If the economy isn't growing, then the stock market doesn't do that well. So to add on to that or force people to invest 70% of their retirement funds into an area which is not growing because of poor governance, you'd actually wonder why did the retirement fund industry go along with this? Was it in coerced by, by government? Was it given promises that it, it wouldn't be badly taxed. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of why such an irrational decision was accepted. If you look, go back to 2010 and you just look back in terms of historical performances, South Africa had just come through a period of fantastic returns. The returns were good 2002 to 28. They were phenomenally good. It was all driven by the commodity cycle, China, uh, and we had a massive bull market. So the, the investment returns looking backwards were very, very good. 
I, I can't prove that there's coercion between Treasury and the big investment companies. But at some point, someone must blow the whistle and say, guys, we need to talk about Break 28. We are not delivering the goods. And I have, over many years, I have tweeted, I've written about it, and I've said, guys, let's have this debate. I have not been able to entice any representative from the financial services industry to officially um, engage in a debate because the, the numbers are very hard to, uh, to, to, to use in your argument. I keep on saying 30% is enough, and I'm, and I'm saying it's not enough. It hasn't been enough for 10 years. As you say, our econom economy has underperformed dramatically, and hence our stock market has performed. And that normally over time is the major driving force of any pension fund. I've done some numbers, and, and, and uh, there's an article coming your way, where even over a five-year period, remember this is when the RAND is the same five years ago, and now so there's no RAND factor coming to the party. A 1 million rand investment in a, in a good general equity fund in South Africa will be worth 1.3 million rand today. If I take a combination of funds that have been publicized for many years, uh, even on your website, which have been offshore, same amount of money, same amount of time, your return today is 2.6 million, exactly double. But I don't hear or see that debate. People are... People are having debates in silos when they talk about markets. There's been a reluctance to compare South Africans' performance with other parts of the world. So we tend to ignore that when we discuss South African returns and vice versa. But if you start comparing returns, we have had a, a period of, of dramatic underperformance. And, 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 and this debate needs to be elevated and aired in, in the public. And hence the retirement crisis. But Magnus, if you are one of those people who has been affected by this over the past 10 years, what do you do now? Is there any way out? There's always, depending on circumstances, if you only have one uh, a large investment in a pension fund, this is the time for you to step up and go and talk to your trustees. That's when we're coming back to, 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 to Alan's, Alan Greenblow. Yeah. Go and talk to your trustees and say, guys, what are you doing about this? Have you aired this? Have you started having this discussion and putting pressure on them? Secondly, you need to go and look at the structure of your retirement fund. And unfortunately, most people are very blase about the fund. Ah, I'm a member of a pension fund. Uh, someone's looking after it for me and I'll be fine. Are you in the right portfolio? And then if you have other investment products like RAs, preservation funds, etc., there are things that you can do. And one is at 55 and above, you can start pulling that out, getting some more cash in other areas of the world to boost your retirement income. And that is that we've been, we've been doing that at Brentis for a very long time with great success. And we've seen how the, the, the returns differ. So it is time for people to also take some responsibility and say, what can I do? I, I cannot just simply accept these statements I get. They get posted to me or emailed and, and, and end of the story. I need to get involved in saying, am I getting bang for my bucks? But the way to do it is to put pressure on your on your trustee who's, 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 who's there for you. So if you're going to stay in the retirement fund, pressurize the trustee and say, this is ridiculous. We need to find an, a better way. International investing is doing much better. If you aren't in that role, if you're a, a, an entrepreneur and you've got retirement uh, annuities, would you cash them in? at age 55 and pay the taxes and take that money and invest it elsewhere or outside of the South African system? Yes, I will. And I've been saying that for a long time. And my, my for my sins, I've been, been, been uh, uh, blamed by, by people in the industry of scaring people and, and, and being the loudest voice in, in the room. And I'm saying I'm glad I'm the loudest voice in the room because nobody's talking about this. And there are so many vested interests wanting to keep that money where it is, if you know what I'm meaning. It's with company A. Company A is not going to tell you, listen, Alec, I think you must cash this out and move your money somewhere else. You will not do that. So there's a little bit of a twisting of, of the truth there, which is driven by vested interest. And as I said at your conference in the mountain, as independent investment advisors, we do not work for the big insurance companies. We work for our clients. They pay us. And we try and give them the best advice based on 
a factual analysis of the situation. Well, thanks for being with us uh, this Wednesday, the 13th of October. I'm Alec Hogg, and on behalf of the Biz News team, look forward to being back in your company again, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.